When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the British Royal Fanatic Podcast. I'm Hayden, your American friend with a passion for British Royal history. Before we get into things, and we have a lot to cover, if you enjoy spending time with me here at the podcast, please be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share wherever it is that you are currently listening. I want to make this podcast the best I can for all of you, so the more you rate and review and share, the more we can play into various platforms' algorithms, and we can show up on lists, and people can see, and in general, it makes it better for not only you, but also for me. So please, if you could take time to do that, I would greatly appreciate it. We have a lot of interview updates, as you can expect. This interview was the bombshell of the of the year, of the season, and at the time of recording, here is what we know. The media, both traditional and social, are having a field day with this, and it doesn't seem like this is going to go away anytime soon. With discussions of racism within the institution, this interview has really divided people's opinions about the monarchy, both those within the UK and the Commonwealth and those here in America. The interview proper came out Sunday in the United States, and it subsequently went live in the UK Monday evening. On Monday morning in the US, Oprah went live with Gail King to share other clips that didn't make the final cut and then to have a larger discussion. Here is what we know, here are the important takeaways from that. The Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh were not the ones who made comments and who had the conversation about Archie's skin tone. They are not the ones. We don't know who. Who knows if we ever will know, but we know for certain that it is not the Queen or the Duke of Edinburgh. The palace is currently in crisis mode as they were not prepared for how much the Duke and Duchess of Sussex were going to share. Now that they are no longer senior working royals and they're on their own, they no longer need the control of the institution in order to do things like this. They don't need to have clearance from them. So the institution and the firm were just as blind as we were going into it and they didn't know what was going to be said. According to Katie Nichols, Royal Royal Correspondent, They had an initial statement drawn to go out on Monday before it went live in the UK, but apparently the Queen held back and waited. She was briefed by her staff about the interview Monday morning, and people wonder if she waited to send out the statement because she wanted to see the interview for herself. Of course, she was briefed on details and what was said, but some people think she actually wanted to see it for herself. After the announcement of their leave, was made, apparently Prince Harry was supposed to go to Norfolk to spend time with the Queen for a few days and discuss things and just to get a general sense of understanding, but he was shunned away as her schedule was surprisingly full. 
He even went so far as to call her and she made a comment that she had forgotten engagements and her schedule was somehow packed and she was sorry. When talking to aides about this and trying to defend himself, it was insinuated to Prince Harry that he was not welcome and to not come and that no matter what, please do not show up there. In his talking about that specific interaction, he insinuates that in some ways, just because she is the queen and the sovereign doesn't mean she is in control of her schedule or the advice she gets. And another takeaway from the interview as a whole, most some members of the family don't really have a lot of free will. Hearing that the queen is supportive and is in a good relationship with both Prince Harry and Meghan, some people are beginning to speculate that maybe Prince Charles has more control behind the scenes than what we the public are given privy to. He is the heir to the throne, and he has been Prince of Wales since 1969, which is a lot of time to be the heir to the throne. So at this point, people are speculating whether he has more control behind the scenes than the queen herself. At this point, everyone is pointing fingers at either Prince Charles Prince William or Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall. People think it's one of those three that were the ones that actually made the racist comments. The royals have been ignoring questions in public about the interview. Prince Charles had an engagement on Tuesday and he blatantly ignored and didn't acknowledge one of the questions when he was out in public. And at the time that this podcast will go live, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge have an engagement and Royal correspondents are on pins and needles wondering if they will actually acknowledge this, if they'll actually answer a question. They're doubtful, as the royals have been trained to never complain, never explain, and to never give the public that, so who knows if they will actually say anything. And lastly, the Queen, Prince Charles, and Prince William have been having meetings to discuss all of this. The interview itself, fallout, what the public has been thinking, and they've been kept very quiet about it. They, meetings have been kept very tight and only the private secretaries are allowed into these interviews and meetings. No one knows what's being said. No one knows what they have planned. Buckingham Palace released an official statement on Tuesday reacting to the interview itself. It states that they are saddened to hear about the experiences that both Prince Harry and Meghan went through, especially regarding race. They deliberately point out experiences about race, so they are at least acknowledging that there is a problem. They then go on to say that, quote, recollections may differ, end quote, but they are going to look into this in a private family matter. They again deliberately say private family matter. People are wanting more and wanting more than just a statement. People are wanting actions and who knows if they will actually get actions. Only time will tell. Royal correspondent Katie Nichol went on record saying how much this interview actually rocked the monarchy and hurt the family itself. When talking about the racist remarks, she made the point that there is a quote-unquote witch hunt going on to figure out who were the royals in that conversation. Elaborating further, she said that it doesn't matter who said it because quote-unquote the damage has already been done and the public is very divided on this. Here in America, there is a lot of people siding with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, calling out the injustice and poor treatment. According to Nichols, people in the UK are actually siding with the monarchy. 
they're being very critical of the royal couples, saying how could they disrespect the institution, how dare they disrespect and insult the monarchy. Everybody's very divided about this. Many people are angry, and in general, people are digging. Social media outlets and tabloid news are digging to find contradictions within the Duke and Duchess of Sussex to point out to discredit them. It is just a complete frenzy. The royal family is under a lot of pressure to try to do something about these allegations, but who knows if they will actually do anything besides an official statement. In all of these discussions about the interview, one thing I would like to point out is the difference between quote-unquote the firm and quote-unquote the institution. They are sometimes used interchangeably, but there are actually subtle differences between the two. That if you watch in the interview, they make point to say what it is and who they're referring to. The firm is a term that is used by working royals to refer to themselves and their small little teams of assistants and ladies-in-waiting and stuff like that. Currently, those working for the firm or are the firm themselves are, of course, Her Majesty the Queen, but also their royal highnesses, the Prince of Wales, the Duchess of Cornwall, the Princess Royal, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, and the Earl and Countess of Wessex. Those are all members of the royal family working on behalf of the monarchy, on behalf of the queen, and thus they do the engagements, and that's what who we see. And they refer to themselves collectively as the firm. And the firm was established after the abdication in 1936. The institution, quote unquote, is the umbrella term used and is what refers to the five main offices that run the entire royal household and keep the firm managed. Those five offices include the HR office, the tech office, the Office of the Private Secretaries, the Privy Purse, and the Treasury Office. All combined together, they manage schedules, manage money, advise the Queen and Royals, and they keep things moving and keep everything managed and they keep the whole system running. I wanted to take a moment to clarify the difference between the institution and the firm because they get used interchangeably. And again, in the interview, they deliberately point out when talking about the firm and the institution. They make it very clear. Some people have also compared the Duchess of Sussex to the Duchess of Windsor. And in my personal opinion, that is very unjust and unfair. They are two drastically different women in two completely different time periods, and they affected the monarchy in two different ways. That's just my opinion. I don't like that comparison because in my mind, it's as if you're comparing apples to a fake tree. They're two different things, two completely different things, unrelated. Additionally, many people in all of this drama, even so far as comparing it to the abdication crisis so long ago, people are still wondering what the royal family is going to do about Prince Andrew and how much his interview actually made things worse. The public and some media sources have begun to point out that why, why is this happening to Prince Harry and Meghan? They've seemingly been thrown to the wolves, but Prince Andrew's still protected. People are beginning to be very critical of the, the institution for protecting Prince Andrew, and he's sort of been hidden away. But again, I digress. I could talk about that for days. 
Prince Philip is still in hospital recovering. When asked about this a few days ago, Katie Nichol said that this is actually kind of a big deal, how long he's been in hospital. It's been almost three weeks now. His help before entering the hospital was actually more precarious and scary than what we were originally led on to. And the fact that he, one, has entered hospital, two, has had a surgery on his heart, and three, is having all these treatments, in some ways people are saying this isn't a very good sign. We know he's responding well to treatments, although they are painful, but other than that, that's all we know. In all this chaos, he is still in hospital recovering. He's 99 years old, so who knows what'll happen. But that is your royal update at the time of recording. That is what we know. This interview has really rocked the monarchy to its core and has really upset people and divided people. And now people are calling on action from the monarchy aside from a statement. They gave a statement, but people are wanting more. Turning back to our regularly scheduled programming, I would like to continue our series on royal residences, but now with the idea of the institution and the firm and the workings of the monarchy at the forefront of everybody's mind, I wanted to talk today about a residence that still to this day has a lot of impact in the control and running of things, and that is St. James's Palace. Once it was the center of the entire monarchy for almost 300 years, and currently it is a royal residence and home to uh, their royal highnesses, Princess Anne, Princess Beatrice, and Princess Alexandra. Many official functions still happen at St. James's Palace, even though it's no longer the center of the royal work and the monarch hasn't lived there for almost 200 years. It has a rich and interesting history, so stay tuned as we head over to St. James's Palace. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. My sources for today's podcast are two wonderful articles from royalcentral.co.uk and the royal family's website itself. St. James's Palace is the oldest royal palace, and I stress palace, in the United Kingdom, and it is located on the mall in the city of Westminster. The building is attached to Clarence House, and it is less than a five-minute walk away from Buckingham Palace. It was the place for all royal function and institutional work for over 300 years until Her Majesty Queen Victoria. St. James's Palace was built by the order of King Henry VIII way back in the 1530s. This is another example of a royal residence starting and staying in the hands of the royal family and the crown estate. We have seen a few examples of other residences starting in the, ha- in the hands of private residences and then becoming royal residences. This has always been a royal residence. It was once the site of a hospital dedicated to St. James the Less, hence where the name of the palace comes from. 
For most Tudor and Stuart monarchs, the palace was the second most important residence in London, the first being the Palace of Whitehall, which sadly was destroyed by a fire in 1698. When compared to the Palace of Whitehall, it is a little smaller, and some of the notable features of the palace at the time were the various quadrangles and, of course, the North Gatehouse. King Henry VIII had St. James's Palace built as a residence to escape court life and the formality and stress in the Palace of Whitehall. Two of Henry's children actually died at the palace, the first being his illegitimate son Henry Fitzroy, the Duke of Richmond and Somerset in 1536, and his second was his daughter Queen Mary I. She died at St. James's Palace in 1558. Henry's older daughter, Queen Elizabeth I, was also known to reside there often, and it is believed that she spent the night there while awaiting the news on the Spanish Armada's progress. During the Stuart era, King Charles I's mother-in-law, Mary de Medici, lived at St. James's Palace for three years. However, as a Catholic former Queen of France, her residence in England proved to be very unpopular with Parliament and she was asked to leave and subsequently return to Cologne. In 1649, King Charles I spent his final night in the palace before his execution on January 30th. Oliver Cromwell then took over the residence and turned it into barracks during the English Commonwealth period. Once the monarchy was restored, the palace was restored by King Charles II following the demise of the Commonwealth. It became the principal residence for the monarch in London in 1698 during the reign of King William III and Queen Mary II, and it has subsequently become, become the administrative center of the monarchy, which is a role it still retains. Both King George I and King George II used the palace as their principal residences in London and used it to house their respective mistresses, the Duchess of Kendal and the Countess of Suffolk. In 1757, King George II donated the palace's library to the British Museum. This gift was what would then later become the royal collection. In 1809, a fire destroyed part of the palace, including the monarch's private apartments at the southeast corner. These apartments were not replaced, leaving the Queen's Chapel isolated from the rest of the building by a large open area, which is now incorporated by Marlborough Road. However, King George III found St. James's Palace to be too small. Think back to the other podcasts that we've had. The old Tudor palace was regarded as uncomfortable, and also it didn't afford its residences enough privacy or space to withdraw away from court life or have any time for their family at all. Instead, the king favored his new home, Buckingham House, and Windsor Castle. The royal family began to spend more of their time at Buckingham House and began to only use St. James's Palace for formal occasions, formal receptions with foreign guests, and officially hold public audiences. In the late 18th century, King George III went so far to refurbish the state apartments but neglected the living quarters themselves. Once Queen Victoria assumed the throne, everything was set in stone and in 1837, the official residence was then changed from St. James's Palace to the newly completed Buckingham Palace. 
and St. James's Palace would only be used for formal occasions and public audiences. Even then, in its time period, more work would actually happen at Buckingham Palace rather than at St. James's Palace. Her uncle, King William IV, was the last monarch to use St. James's Palace as a residence, even though he spent more time at his newly built Clarence House rather than the palace proper itself. Some of the most notable monarchs who were born at St. James's Palace include King Charles II, King James II, Queen Mary II, and Queen Anne. Queen Victoria's wedding to Prince Albert actually occurred at the palace on February 10th, 1840. Subsequently, the wedding of their eldest daughter, Princess Victoria, also took place at St. James's Palace, where she married Prince Frederick of Prussia on January 25th, 1858. In today's modern world, it is the home of their royal highnesses, the Princess Royal, Princess Beatrice, and Princess Alexandra. It is the former residence of Prince Charles, Prince William, Prince Harry, and Princess Eugenie. Today, St. James's Palace remains a busy working place. The state apartments are sometimes used for entertaining during state visits, as well as other ceremonial and formal functions. They host receptions for charities where members of the royal family are involved, sometimes close to 100 a year. Of course, in this COVID world, that has since been put on hold, but who knows what will happen once quarantine and lockdowns have officially been lifted. St. James's Palace also remains an important ceremonial function of the running of the crown. The Ascension Council meets at St. James's Palace following the death of a monarch and then later the Ascension of a new sovereign. The Ascension of the new sovereign is proclaimed by the Garter King of Arms at the Proclamation Gallery overlooking the Friary Court. Family occasions have also been held at St. James's Palace over the years, most recently the christening of Prince George in 2013. The offices of the Royal Collection Trust, the Marshal of Diplomatic Corps, the Central Chancery of the Orders of Knighthood, the Chapel Royal, the Gentlemen at Arms, the Yeomen of the Guard, and the Queen's Watermen are all located at St. James's Palace. In closing, St. James's Palace is a massive working part of the firm and the institution. Regardless if a sovereign lives there or not, it will continue to be the workhorse within the royal family. St. James's Palace has seen a lot of history in its time as a royal residence. It has been the birthplace of many sovereigns. It has been the final resting place of quite a few. It has also been the home of some of their mistresses. It serves as official space for the many offices within the institution, as well as homes for the royals. It's seen political intrigue, a massive revolution, a fire, and while those during its time period felt it couldn't keep up with the changing tastes, it still holds an important place in terms of service and duty. Once the pandemic ceases around the world and work can resume as it was before, St. James's Palace will once again maintain its spot as the, as one of the hardest working royal residences within the firm. And that, dear listeners, is a very brief history into the historic St. James's Palace. In having closing thoughts about the interview and what'll fall out, I don't know what's gonna happen. Personally, I don't know who to side with. 
I understand the struggles that the Duke and Duchess of Sussex went through. While it is a life that I do not live, I at least empathize. And in terms of mental health, I very much empathize and sympathize with them as well. I have my own. I don't think we will ever know who those conversations were with. I don't. I do not think we will ever know. In terms of the various contradictions, I understand where people are coming from. They're trying to find a place to place blame and try to justify their own feelings by belittling the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. But again, we are not them. We do not know the full story. As my grandmother instilled in me, there are three sides to every story. Their side, your side, and then the truth. Who knows if we'll ever officially know what happened. But much like Princess Diana in her 1995 BBC Panorama interview, there are a lot of similarities. If you want to hear about the bombshell interview with Princess Diana in 1995, please stay tuned as we will go into that on Monday, looking into some landmark royal interviews. If you made it this far, I would personally like to say thank you for stopping by the podcast today. I'm very happy you showed up. If you want to email me to let me know how I'm doing, suggest topics for further shows, and try to suggest ways for me to improve this podcast, you can email me at britishroyalfanpod at gmail.com, or you can head over to Twitter and follow me there at fanatic underscore royal. Especially with all this interview fallout and stories coming out left, right, and center, I've been trying to update articles and post what's been going on on Twitter. I live tweeted most of the interview, so if you want to scroll back there and see my initial knee-jerk thoughts, by all means, go back there. I want to make this podcast the best for all of you, and I want to interact with all of you as best I can. Head on over to Anchor, Google, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, CastBox, or wherever you are currently listening, and please rate, review, subscribe, and share. Let me know how I'm doing so I can improve the show for you, improve it for me, and make it the best it can be. Also, the more you interact with the podcast, the more it rises on lists and plays into algorithms, and the family can grow, and we can welcome more people into the Royal Fanatic Podcast family. Have a great rest of your day. Please stay safe and stay healthy, and I will see you in the next one. Music